I knew two brothers-in-law who entered the army in World War II. They were sent to separate areas of action for their training and their entrance into the theater of war. Both of them ended up being witnessed to. And both of them, in the places where they were sent, as a result of hearing the gospel, received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Then they met again on furlough. Can you imagine their excitement? To tell their brother-in-law about their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And then imagine their surprise when they began sharing and discovered that the other one had accepted Jesus into their life as well. Can you imagine the surprise as one began to share what happened? The other one, you too? (laughs) The same experience has happened to me. And they were overjoyed. The one man said to me that we spent the whole rest of the time talking about how wonderful Christ is. Say, new Christians have wonder, don't they? They have the wonder of their first love. We were never meant to lose our wonder. The Lord Jesus Christ to a Christian is always to be wonderful to us. And what I want to do this morning is I want to stir up that wonder in our hearts. Now, we all know that Jesus Christ is the reason for the season. And there is no passage, I think, in all the Bible that illuminates the greatness of his wonder like Hebrews chapter 1. I want you to take your Bibles and turn there with me for a moment. And let me read the opening prologue of this Christ-filled book. And listen to how the writer begins as he introduces to us the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear his words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Now this passage is like an amazing string of pearls that unfolds one after the other. Each pearl in this description of Christ is brilliant and valuable in its own right. But when you put them all together, they are unparalleled. And the greatness of Jesus that is unfolded for us in this string of pearls is a cause for love, for joy, for trust, 
and for increasing wonder. Let's do that this morning, shall we? Let's unfold this string of pearls that we may just have the wonder of Christ renewed in our hearts. Would you just bow with me for prayer for a moment? Lord Jesus, we know that you are the reason for the season. And as we are in the stores, and we see the hustle and bustle and the materialism, the frothy, empty songs that are played over the intercom, we recognize that the world is all caught up in the wrong thing. But when we come to church, Lord, it's when we find the true reason for this season. And we all know it is Christ in us who is the hope of glory. We thank you that uh, underneath the manger and, and uh, with the infant and, and all the things that take place that are so familiar to us, the Bible brings out in a wonderful way the greatness and grandeur of the Son who was given to us. And so help us today to worship Him, to glory in Him, to have the wonder of first love renewed in our hearts, that we might rejoice in Him, love Him, trust Him, and follow Him in a greater way. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. First pearl in this string is that Jesus is the greatest revelation. Uh, This opens by saying, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Now what the Lord is telling us here is that God is a God who reveals himself. God spoke. He created us for fellowship with Himself, and fellowship requires communication. Fellowship demands knowing truth about God. Uh, Years ago, uh, Billy Graham was addressing a very large audience, and they were given the opportunity to ask him questions. Here were some of the questions they asked the famous evangelist. What about abortion? Is homosexuality wrong? Is there a hell? Is there only one way? Are Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, and Jews lost without Jesus Christ? Now those are tough questions, aren't they? Those are tough questions. But since God has spoken, there are clear answers to every one of those questions. Now what verse 1 is describing for us is Old Testament revelation. God speaking in the Old Testament. And there are two things that are revealed about this revelation. Number one, Old Testament revelation was progressive. When he says many times God spoke, the idea here is a little bit here, a little bit there. He even has the idea of bit by bit. So God revealed a little bit to Abraham. Uh, Then he revealed a little more to David. Then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They got a little bit more of the revelation of God. It was a progressive unfolding. Second thing we learn here is that Old Testament revelation was incomplete. 
Now, the Old Testament is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And all God's people said, but it wasn't everything God wanted to say. Do you know the Trinity is only hinted at in the Old Testament? It's fully developed in the New. Do you know the church is not taught at all in the Old Testament? You have to wait for Ephesians and Colossians and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So the Old Testament revelation was incomplete. Well, now what the Bible says here is when God was ready to say all that he had to say, he sent his son. And verse 2 is describing New Testament translation, or New Testament revelation. Now, our versions say in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, but the his there is added for clarity. Literally, the writer says, he has spoken to us in son, in son. The stress is on the quality of his revelation and the superior method that God used. It is a son kind of revelation, not a prophet kind of revelation. And clearly here, the incarnation is in view. When God got ready to say all that he wanted to say, he did not just send a man, but he sent the God-man. He did not just only send a word, but he sent the one who is the word. He did not just send one called by God, but he sent one who came from God. Sometimes in my ministry, people will tell me that Jesus is still speaking to them outside of the Bible. I will take them to this verse, and I will ask them this question. What tense is it when it says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son? What is the tense, he has spoken to us? And they will say, well, that is past tense. I will say, you are right. What does that mean then? Well, it means Jesus has finished speaking. It means revelation is complete. It means that God has said all that he intends and has decided to say. It means when the Son has come and spoken God's word, there is nothing more to be said. That's why Jesus, as he was glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration, and all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, say, God spoke from heaven, and he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. When the Son has come and spoken, There is nothing more that can be said. Now, the writer here knows that some in his audience are going to object to what he is saying. Some are going to say, I do not believe Jesus is the capstone of God's communication. 
I do not believe God has finished speaking. Why should I believe that Jesus is the Word, the truth, the Son, and the final spokesman? And the author says, for anybody who has that objection, I now want to give to you seven reasons why you ought to believe this. Now, for a Jew, the number seven is what number? Yeah, it's the perfect number. Seven, therefore, refers to a complete work of God. Therefore, the writer is telling us that Jesus is perfect in every way. And you know what? That ends all arguments. That ends all arguments. So let's do this. Let's rip off these seven additional pearls in this string of pearls that is complete until we are finally at the end and we say together, it is finished. It is finished. Here's the second pearl starting the first string of seven. Secondly, we learn he is the greatest authority. The writer says about him, he was appointed heir of all things. Now, an heir is someone who gains sole possession of an estate, and thus he is in control and authority of that estate. When my father died, he was very, very wise. He divided the inheritance equally between my two sisters and I. I wish he could have done something a little different, but he was much wiser than me. What he could have done is he could have made me the sole heir of his inheritance. And that would have meant that I would have been in total control and authority over his house and over his money. And then I could have decided what I would give to my sisters. Do you know? That can cause a lot of problems. And so my dad was much wiser than I, and he made all of us equal heirs. But notice what's happened here. God has made Jesus the sole heir. He is the only one who is worthy and the one who will not abuse all that he has to inherit. This is why Jesus could say just before he went back to heaven to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. I am going to inherit it all. Now, if we ask why, that's the third pearl. Third pearl tells us that he is the greatest power. Notice in verse 2 it says, Through whom the Father, God, also created the world. Last summer, Ellen and I camped out uh, on M28 near Lake Superior. At 3 a.m. in the morning, we got up to go to the restroom. As we were on our way back to the camper, Ellen just said to me, Look, look. I looked up into the sky, and I was overwhelmed by the Milky Way. Without the lights of the city, the stars were so voluminous that it was almost as though I could reach up and touch them. I realized what I miss every night by living 
within the city limits. In fact, I was glad Ellen was holding on to me that evening as we went back to the camper because I felt I could have fallen over. I was so stunned as I looked up. Do you know Albert Einstein concluded and estimated that there are 10 octillion stars in the universe? And if you were to ask me, how many is 10 octillion? Let me share with you what that is. 1,000 thousands makes 1 million. 1,000 millions makes 1 billion. 1,000 billions makes 1 trillion. 1,000 trillions makes 1 quadrillion. 1,000 quadrillion makes 1 quintillion. 1,000 quintillions makes 1 sextillion. 1,000 sextillions makes 1 septillion, and 1,000 septillions makes 1 octillion. And Albert Einstein estimated there are 10 octillion stars in the universe. That is one with 28 zeros behind it. Now, if we were to ask ourselves, Why did the Father use the Son to create the world when he could have created the world himself? The answer is to show us the greatness of the Son. Only God can create. And creation reveals Jesus has the power of God and he created 10 octillion stars. That is amazing. Now as we continue to look at this, we see that Jesus is also the greatest being. Notice verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, these two phrases are talking about the being of the Lord Jesus Christ. The radiance of the glory of God, the word radiance means an outshining that comes from within. The radiance of a source of light cannot be separated from the light itself. Did you know this is the difference between the sun and the moon? Let me put a little diagram up on the screen here this morning to show us the difference between the sun and the moon. The moon is a reflector. It has no light of its own. And so the reason that the moon has a light is because the sun is shining upon it and it's acting like a mirror and reflecting the light of the sun to us. But the sun has its own light. It radiates its own light from its source. Now, if we begin to understand that, what the writer is telling us is this. Christ's glory and the glory of the Father are identical. Christ possesses the very same perfections that the Father possesses, thus he is equal with the Father in his very being because he radiates the same glory that the Father radiates. This is why when we get to Revelation, we read that heaven has no need of the Son 
because the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son in that place because he radiates the very glory of God. Notice the second thing that is told about the being of Jesus. We are told he is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, this expression, exact imprint, was used of the impression that was made on a coin by a metal die. Uh, Let me put up before you a uh, metal die. And as you look at this metal die and the coin that was made from it, you can very clearly see the image of George Washington on this metal die is exactly reproduced on our quarter. So the impression on the quarter is the exact imprint of the die. Um, uh, One of my dear brothers here today has the old Revised Standard Version in his hands. At this point in his version, it says about Jesus, he bears the very stamp of God's nature. He bears the very stamp of his nature. The Son, therefore possesses the very same nature as the Father. This is why a few weeks ago in our study in the Upper Room Discourse, we got to chapter 14. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Remember what Jesus says, Philip? Don't you understand? He who has seen me has seen the Father that he has the very same nature as the Father, and therefore he radiates the very same glory. Let's look at the next pearl. The next pearl in this string is he is the greatest sustainer. He is the greatest sustainer. Notice verse 3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, this is an amazing thought. Uh, The word uphold means to bear or to carry. It means to carry along. So the idea is that Jesus holds everything together so that our world will not fall into chaos. Do you know what this means? Christ created science, and he is the one upon which all scientific laws depend for their operation. What an incredible thing to think about. That all of the things that take place today so that we can enjoy all of the modern conveniences and understanding of our world through science, Jesus created that science, and he is the one that makes those scientific laws operate. This week, I learned something about our own solar system that I never knew before. Let me just share with you what I learned and the greatness of Christ in this. The largest planet in our solar system is Jupiter, where you see the arrows. It is two planets away from Earth. Mars is in between. Jupiter is a gaseous planet made up of gases. It is a rare planet in uh, the entire universe, and its mass is 318 times the mass of the earth. Now, here's something very amazing. The reason that earth sustains life so well 
is because of Jupiter's massive gravitational pull. Astronomers tell us that it acts like a huge vacuum cleaner so that objects like like comets and, and spatial debris that are hurtling through space if they hit Earth could do great damage. They are either sucked into the orbit of Jupiter or the gravitational pull causes them to veer in such a way that they miss Earth. One astronomy professor at UCLA says, without Jupiter nearby, Earth would be a sitting duck. Isn't that amazing? Jupiter is like a protective shield. It's like a big brother as it orbits around the sun. And now get this. The one who keeps the largest planet in our solar system that is a protective shield sustaining life on earth, the one who keeps that orbiting nearby year after year after year after year is none other than Jesus Christ by his powerful word. Can we say wonder this morning? That is wonder. Notice the next pearl in the string. He is the greatest atonement. He is the greatest atonement. Verse 3 says, After making purification for sins. The emphasis here is that Christ has accomplished something no one else could. He cleansed sin. He removed it. He put it away by paying its penalty. And the tense here suggests he did this by one complete act. Have you ever asked yourself this question? What about Christ's nature made him capable of salvation? Many years ago, there was um, a Bible student by the name of Anselm, and he very much thought about this question. Why did it have to be a God-man could be the only one that could purify us from our sins? In fact, he wrote a book with a Latin title, Cur Deus Homo, which means, Why a God-Man? I think the best answer that I've ever seen to this question What about Christ's nature made him capable of salvation was given by a Puritan pastor of many generations ago by the name of John Howe. Listen to what Pastor Howe had to say. He said, The wrong that man had done to the divine majesty should be expiated by none but man. And isn't that true? We're the ones who offended the divine majesty, by our sins. Therefore, we had to pay the penalty. But, said John Howe, that penalty could be paid by none but God. Since there are an infinite number of sins by a large infinite number of people, only an infinite God could pay that infinite price. And so notice how John Howe put it together. Behold, both 
in one Emmanuel. Both in one Emmanuel. You see, the incarnation was designed for this very purpose. That man who owed the debt, and God alone who could pay the debt, would come together in one person called Emmanuel, God with us. And now we see what the writer has done. He has gone from the glory of this heavenly being and his person, and he has now brought him down to earth in his incarnation. And he has shown us the reason why he came. As Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now notice the next pearl in this string. He has the greatest position now. He has the greatest position. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You can tell that the author is very sensitive to his Jewish audience. They did not want to speak God's personal name. And they would often refer to God in other ways, like the majesty on high. And so here when he says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he is sensitive to his Jewish readers. He is using this expression for God himself. This morning, let me put something on a screen that I find very, very interesting that you can purchase. This is a tabernacle furniture set that you can buy. Here's all the furniture that was in the tabernacle and eventually was used in Solomon's temple in the worship of God. Now, all the furniture pieces that the priests work with were there. By the way, all of these... They all are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's the altar of burnt offering where the sacrifices were made, and Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. There's the laver of water where ritual defilement had to be washed away before the priests could approach God. There's the altar of incense that represented the prayers of God's people lifting up to God. There's the table of showbread revealing that God was the sustainer of his people. There is the the lampstand, the candlestick, showing that he was the light who brought them truth. And then there was the Ark of the Covenant inside of the veil, with the cherubim and their wings spread out in the mercy seat, where atonement was made for the sins of God's people. Do you notice a piece of furniture that is missing? Do you notice a piece of furniture that is very common in our homes, but is not here in the temple? There's no chairs, are there? There's no chairs, no couch for the high priest to sit down. And you know why. His work was never complete. His sacrifices never could ultimately deal with sin. The blood of bulls and goats, says the Bible, could not accomplish 
our salvation. But just before Jesus gave up his spirit, as he hung on the cross, he said, It is finished. And I used to think as a boy growing up that meant his life was over. What he meant was, I'm ready to die. But now I understand, no, what Jesus meant is my sacrifice is complete. I have paid for all the sins of the world. And when the last sin was paid for, he could say, it is finished, paid in full. And I love what the Bible says when it says that all the ordinances and the commandments that were against us, they were nailed to him with the cross and they were taken out of the way. And our salvation is complete and now he sits. He sits because it is finished. Well, that leads obviously to the last pearl. The last pearl in this amazing string, and the final seven proving the first one, that he is the greatest revelation from God, is that he has the greatest name. Look at verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Let me ask you this morning, why is son greater than the name angel? Why? Well, I think the answer to that secret is found in Isaiah 9-6. Let me ask you to read with me today this great prophecy from the Old Testament. It is the answer to why son is greater than the name angel. Would you join me? Let's read it together. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Did you notice this? A child is born. But an eternal son can only be given. And the reason he is the eternal son is he is all that the eternal father is. He is wonderful counselor, he is mighty God, he is everlasting father, and he is prince of peace. And the child is born as a man. But a son can only be given as eternal God. And that's why he has the greatest name. What an amazing, amazing string of pearls. What else could stir up the first love for the Savior? As I meditate upon this and think about this during the week of our Savior's birth, there are some conclusions that I want to share with us this morning, just by way of application. Let's take these with us this week and into the new year. 
as we adore and worship Christ. Let me place them on the screen and just briefly share them with you. Number one, Christ is the key to all wisdom and all knowledge. In light of what we have seen, in the spiritual realm, and even in the scientific realm, in the realm of human relationships, in the realm of religion, whatever realm it may be, He alone is the key to the wisdom and knowledge that we need. Secondly, Christ is the only way to know God. If God is the God who has communicated, and His Old Testament Word was not fully complete, and He sent the very best that He had to say all that He wanted to say, then Christ is the only way to know God. And if we should go off on some other path, we will be missing the very God who is seeking to reach us. Number three, learning of Christ is life's greatest pursuit. Since there is no one like him who has accomplished nothing like he has done, the greatest pursuit we can have in life is to learn more and more of him. The last command that Peter ever gave to the church was grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is life's greatest pursuit. Number four, anything that would distract us from Christ is a dangerous thing. Even in the church, anything that we would begin to pursue or get involved in that somehow would not have Christ as its center is dangerous for us because He is intended by God to be the center of our lives and the center of all that we do. Number five, Christ's total control helps us to follow Him. I don't know about you, but I I get weary. The trials of life wear me down. I've only lived 57 years now, but in my 57 years, I've had enough trial and enough heartache and enough difficulty. And sometimes you say to yourself, I just wonder if I can keep making it. But if he is in total control, if everything has been placed under his feet and he is going to rule and reign and everything is going to come out as he has designed it, that encourages me to say it will be worth it and I will keep following him. Finally, our awe of Christ is what really creates worship. If we want to know where worship begins and where it starts and where it wells up within our hearts, it is the awe that we have of Jesus Christ. We want to stir up worshipers, lift Him up high and glorify Him. Let us revel in all that He is and all that He has done. And worship will take its proper place because He is the one who creates wonder in our hearts. What a wonderful thing it was for those two new Christians. Not realizing that 
two brothers-in-law had met Christ separately, getting together to share their joy in the Lord, finding that each one had come to know the Savior independently, and then saying, we spent the whole rest of the time talking about how wonderful Christ May he give that to us this day and this season. Would you bow with me in prayer? Let's thank you. Just before I lead us in prayer, and we will come together and sing a song, I just want to once again offer Christ to you. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure where you stand with the Lord. Maybe you've never seen Christ presented in this way from the pages of Scripture. And maybe God has touched you in a special way. And you have said to yourself, I need to be sure that I know the Savior. I'd like to give you that opportunity right now. This could be the greatest Christmas season you ever have if you would come to know Him. You can say something like this to him, O Lord, I know that when you are on that cross, you are hanging there for my many sins. Lord, if my heart were to be opened wide for everyone to see, there would be many things I would not want anyone to know. But I believe you hung there and you made purification for my sins. Lord Jesus, you can say, I'm repenting right now. I'm turning from my own selfish way. And I'm coming to you. Come into my heart and cleanse it, Lord Jesus, from sin. Come into my life and take over. I submit to you today. I give you control. Lord Jesus, make me a child of God. Come and give me new life. Give me the gift of eternal life. And Lord Jesus, from this day forward, knowing what I know about you, I will follow you. God helping me with all of my heart. Lord Jesus Christ, you may say, Thank you for saving me. And then for brothers and sisters today. We grow weary in this world. We get tired. Sometimes living for the Lord becomes monotonous. There are days when the circumstances are very depressing. And sometimes under a dark cloud, we cannot see the glory of the one we believe in. And our first love begins to wane. And the Christian life can become very, very routine. And really the only antidote for that is to, once again, allow the wonder of our hearts to be stirred up by what we have in Jesus Christ. It is to focus our minds and our attention upon Him, to rejoice in who He is and what He has done, 
and to ask Him to keep the first love burning, that we might remain vibrant, vital, alive, experiencing the wonder and awe of true worship. If there's a need in your life to do that, would you say, Lord, help me again to see the wonder of our Savior on the pages of Scripture. May they stir into a flame the gift that has been placed within me, that I might live in the joy of my Lord in spite of the circumstances that He has permitted. Father, today, thank You for meeting us. Thank You for bringing us to the foot of the cross once again. Thank You that in this place we learn the real reason for the season. And we magnify Christ. For it's in His name that we pray with great thanksgiving. Amen.